Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. The scripture this, this morning is from 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, a little bit different from what we usually read from. Again, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And this world is fading away, along with everything that people people crave. But anyone who does what what pleases God will live forever. Hey, thank you, Bruce. Hey, well, this morning we are starting a brand new late summer series uh, entitled uh, The Idol Factory. And uh, I hope over the next several weeks that we learn a little bit about our hearts Uh, the place where idols are created, and that as a result, the Holy Spirit uh, will illuminate our hearts and we'll be able to identify things that are keeping us uh, from a wholehearted commitment to our Heavenly Father. And so we want to remove those things from our hearts, And uh, we want to have our affections, our loyalty, our allegiance squarely on uh, our God and our Savior. I want to start with a story. Hopefully I can kind of make an analogy here. Several years ago, uh, Lori and I had returned from a mission trip to Romania And uh, at that time, our good friends, Ron and Carrie Pierce, invited us over uh, for a brunch. Uh, And we were really looking forward to it because uh, they had a particular dish that they knew we liked. And they were preparing it just for us. And there's nothing like home cooking. When you've been out on the mission field or you've been out of, you know, your just kind of a normal environment eating things and doing things that um, stretch you, that are different, that that help you grow, but there's nothing like home cooking. And I know some of you know that. That's why the Sawyers are back here uh, from Texas, because you're after the fish. That's right. Rodney and Nancy, uh, our former field director, uh, so much of who we are and so much of the Lord's work here in Alaska, Rodney, um, is due to you and Nancy and your faithful commitment. And it's so good to have you back. You are family, 
And if you're ever looking for a church home, you get tired of southern Texas, come on north, will you? All right, it's great to see you. So, we go to the Pierce's for brunch, and they did not disappoint. Fresh baked goods, fresh juice, and then the center of attention. My favorite breakfast casserole. Chili, cheese, egg, yum yum. All right. It tastes like it sounds. And uh, we were most of the way through breakfast, and I'd had seconds, and I'd had thirds. And I, I just wanted to lavish praise upon Carrie, who baked this for us. And, and I couldn't think of what to say. Now, men, pay attention. When you want to lavish praise on another woman's cooking in your wife's presence and you can't think of what to say, don't say anything. (laughs) All right, there's probably a good reason for it. So, having not learned my lesson at that time, I, I thought of the most complimentary thing I could say. I said, Carrie... If I were on death row, flair for the dramatic, if I were on death row and they asked me what I wanted my last meal, my dying man's meal to be, I'd ask for your chili, cheese, egg, yum, yum. It's that good. There was a pause. And then Lori, my wife, said, oh, really? Well, my next husband will ask for my pasta. (laughs) All right? I'll tell you what. Remove foot from the mouth. You know, at that moment, I had competing culinary affections. Alright? In reality, I probably would ask for my wife's pasta. Um, And yet, at that moment, oh, that chili cheese egg yum yum was so good, so delicious, it literally made me forget about the time and the energy, the effort, the love that goes into Lori's pasta. It it literally drew my culinary affections away. And for that moment in time, I don't know what got into me, but all I could think about was the chili, cheese, egg, yum, yum. Now, what's that have to do with our passage today? I'm glad you asked. Today, uh, we're going to talk about competing affections. The devil, Satan, has a kitchen. We'll call it Hell's Kitchen. How about that? And he is taking ingredients, things that we're all familiar with, good things, things that God created, 
And he's concocting not a culinary delight, but a spiritual delight that would cause us to turn our affections away from what God has prepared, what God has created, the love and the intention and the purpose to which God serves it to us. Satan's desire is to take good things, but to distort them. Good things and to pervert them. Things that are whole, but broken down into smaller ingredients to be prepared and served in a way that will cause us to yearn for those things rather than the things of God. Does that make sense? Competing affections. Where do our affections lie? Let's look at our passage again from 1 John chapter 2. And again, this is from the um, New Living Translation. The reason I chose it is because it does a little bit of interpretation for us. Uh, You might be familiar, some of you grew up with translations that would say, do not love the world or anything in it for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, right, are not from God. Well, this translation kind of takes and really defines what those things are in a very clear way, which helps us understand. So it begins this way. It says, do not love this world. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. Okay? The uh, chili cheese egg yum yum. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. Now, in this verse, this is the only command. This is a command. Okay? It's not, you got to think about not loving the world or the things it offers you. Or, you know, sometimes you, you, you can, but don't make it a habit. It doesn't give us that option, does it? It's written as a command. Do not, right? Do not love this world. Don't do it. Now, parents, when you tell your children not to do something, what what does it result in? Come on, parents. They do it. Right? And uh, we, as God's children, have that propensity. We're no different. We read things in Scripture. They're They're there not to deny us. Not because God is some cosmic killjoy that doesn't want us to enjoy life, enjoy the world. In fact, John Piper, Pastor John Piper, has a book called Christian Hedonism. And in it, basically, he talks about how we can enjoy the creation. God intends for us to enjoy creation, the things of the world, right? But in a way that honors him, in a way that he intends for us to enjoy those things. Does that make sense? So God here is not saying, 
you should live this ascetic lifestyle where there's no enjoyment, where you deny yourself of all pleasure and things that are good. No. That's not what he's saying. The word love here means to be enticed by evil desire or base appetite. That love that's intended to draw us away from the love of the Father. So that we set our affections on things other than Him. The world is not speaking of, in in this instance, the, the material, physical world that God created and said, this is good. Rather, it's, it's talking about an invisible spiritual system of evil that's dominated by Satan. That's in opposition to God, to His Word, and to God's people. Okay? Now, when John is writing this, he's in Asia Minor. Most scholars believe he's in or around Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a center of, of intellectual and, 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 and cultural things, uh, arts, uh, divination. I mean, it, it was a crossroads in which there were multiple philosophies that all kind of led into and through and out of that area. And, and John is writing to believers who are being enticed away from various philosophies, teachings, systems that are in place that ostensibly are created for the good of people, but in reality threatens their allegiance and their affections towards God. There are religious teachings. There's incipient Gnosticism okay, that's already impacting and infiltrating the church. There are believers who have been seduced. They are teaching and they're encouraging others and leading them away from the things of the Lord and into the enticements that are intended to, to draw them away from God. This is what John's talking about. And so if we were to look at the the sinful craving or the craving of sinful men, it's a a preoccupation with gratifying physical desire. It's, It's the lust of the flesh. The craving for everything we see is a a craving, an accumulating of things. It's bowing down at the altar and the God of materialism. It's looking at everything that the world has to offer. Good things. Yet when distorted, when used outside of the intention that God created them for, they take His place in our heart. Or, The boastful pride of life. In, in this passage, it would be um, pride in our achievements and possessions. Pride in our achievements and our possessions. You see, the, the heart is the factory 
The human heart is the factory that manufactures idols. We, we, we take things, and as we manufacture them, they are used and become a part of the enemy's scheme to draw us away from the Lord. Now, this passage is very relevant in that we live in a similar time, don't we? When there are competing ideas, philosophies, ways of life, that, that's part of that, that, that world system that our enemy, Satan, uses, infiltrates for his purposes. It's a, a cosmic, spiritual battle that's taking place all about us. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the temptation is not to turn our eyes on Jesus, but to turn away to things that perhaps look good, taste good, feel good, promote us. They can be subtle things. But in the end, in the end, they produce an idol or idols. So the passage begins with the command, do not love this world nor the things it offers. But then it gives three arguments or reasons why you shouldn't do that. One command with three supporting arguments or reasons. The first one is, if you love this world and the things it offers you, love for the world pushes out love for the Father. That kind of love, right? The love that entices, the love that seduces, the love that appeals to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That kind of love pushes out love for our Heavenly Father. The second reason we're not to love this world nor the things it offers is because the world and all that it offers will someday pass away. It's temporary. It's not eternal. It's not lasting. It can't satisfy only but for a moment. And if you invest your hope, your life, your energy into those things, if those things become your God, you need to know something. They're counterfeits. They're going to pass away. The third argument he gives, the first, love for the world pushes out love for the Father. The world and its lusts and its enticements will pass. It's not eternal. It's not going to last. The third reason is this. However, if you do the will of the Father, if you do the will of the Father, if you live in the world according to to His will, to His Word. If you resist the enticements, the seduction of the evil one using the world system to draw you away from God, if you do that, here's the good news. You 
will live forever. You see the contrast? The the world system, the corruption of created things that the devil wants to use to entice us to draw our affections away from God, those things will pass. Christ Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And in the great cosmic battle that's taking place, of which we're a part of, of which if we're not alert, we can be collateral damage. Right? Jesus assures the victory. Jesus assures the victory. That's what John's saying here. Don't turn away. Don't be enticed. Don't go astray. Those things seem desirable. They may appeal to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life, but they're only temporary. Do the will of the Father. Live in accordance to the truths of Scripture. And you will live forever. That's what John is saying here. Now, I want to call attention to two other passages that John wrote in his Gospels. First, John 15, 18 through 19. What's going to happen if we make a decision to live for God, to obey His Word, to be deliberate about keeping our affections on Him in a cosmic world system that Satan is using to draw us away? What does that mean? If, if we love God in the way that we're called to, the world will look and say, well, they're opposed. There's opposition. And Jesus talks to His disciples about, about that. He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world that is why the world hates you. Right? Now, when I was in law enforcement, sometimes we'd go to a call with the fire department. And I'll never forget leaving the call, and as a fire truck drove by, kids and people would wave, and they just, with the firemen would wave back. And as I drove by in my patrol car, they'd show their uh, appreciation with their middle fingers. Now, did I do anything to them? Did they know me? Did I have a relationship with them? Absolutely not. What were they responding to? My uniform? The car that I was in? The authority that I represented? Right? They didn't know me. But it's what ostensibly I stood for. And that's where the rub was. It's the same way often for Christ followers in the world. People don't know you necessarily. 
But if you wear the label Christian, immediately it can evoke hostility. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Because there's this conflict. There's this competing affections. And one voice is saying, love the world. Make it your God. And the other voice, the voice of Scripture, the voice of God through Scripture is saying, don't love the world or anything in it. And those two things are competing for our affection, for our allegiance, for our loyalty. Then later on, John 17, 15 through 18. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. And he's praying for his disciples. And he says, my prayer, Father, is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Why? If they're not being taken out of the world, they need protection from the evil one. Why? Because the world is the domain of the evil one. Right? And he has power. And he's using that power to subvert, to undermine, to draw away, to entice all who would be followers of Christ. Now, that power is limited. It has restraints placed on it. God is sovereign. God is in control. Christ has won the victory. And yet the power he has, he uses and exerts it in the world system. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. See, the answer is not to withdraw from the world. Because Christ is saying, my disciples are to engage the world. But they're to engage it with their eyes wide open, fully understanding the danger and the enticements that lurk. They're to engagement, engage it standing on my word. And trusting in my Holy Spirit to empower them and protect them, to lead them and to guide them. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it, he continues. Sanctify them by your truth. That means set them apart for your holy purposes. Okay? For your purposes, Lord. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. As you send me, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Okay? Jesus sent and is sending his disciples into the world. Okay? And so that's where we understand we're in the world, but we're not of the world. That's where our understanding of this comes from. That's where it's shaped. Now, Protect them from the evil one, it says. Okay, the evil one is Satan. Now let me give you some descriptions of who he is that really explain what he's about. Satan is the god of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. When it speaks of him being the god of the world, it's the world system. It's that spiritual system of 
of evil dominated by Satan that's in opposition to God, His Word, and God's people. Ephesians 2.2, 2, Satan is the prince of the power of the air. It goes on to say that he is the spirit at work in all those who are disobedient towards God. Okay? It's who he is. It's what he does. It's what he's about. Satan is the father of lies. The father of lies. I'm going to share something with you. The moment we begin to believe lies about who God is, about who we are, our identity, about who He created us to be, in other words, who we are and to whom we belong. When we begin to believe lies about that, we are the most susceptible and vulnerable to idolatry, of creating God replacements in our heart, because our trust our love, our allegiance, our loyalty is suddenly, towards God, is suddenly put into question. That's why it's so important that we're grounded in His Word. That we're people of His Word. In the covenant church, we have an expression, where is it written? It's important we come to God's Word. He's the father of lies. He's the deceiver of the whole world. Revelation 12, 9. And check this out. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. If he revealed himself the way he really is, right? Who would follow that? But he disguises himself as an angel of light. He entices us. Right? By appealing to things that we crave. Things that suddenly are no longer cravings but become idols. Things that usurp God and His authority in our life. Things that, that sit on the throne of our heart that belongs only to King Jesus. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, I highly recommend it. In fact, what I'm going to share with you now comes from that book. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it's an idol. Ouch. Right? Our heart is an idol factory. We must constantly be on guard, alert, and aware. Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, Be sober, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Okay? He didn't devour you with bad things. 
He devours us with good things that become bad things in our life. You see that? Now, Keller goes on to say, idolatry of the heart, because the heart is the factory that produces idols, it has three forms. It has love idols, trust idols, and obey idols, right? Idolatry is adultery towards God. It's unfaithfulness to our true spouse. Look at Hosea 3.1. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. Idolatry is adultery towards God. Idolatry is self-salvation. It's rejecting God as our Savior. It's looking for things or people other than God to do what only God can do. God alone is our salvation. Idolatry is self-salvation. It's rejecting God as our true Savior. Looking for other things to save us, to, to bolster us up, to keep us buoyant in life. Those are trust idols. We trust things other than God to save us. Jeremiah 2.28 Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. Of course, the answer is they can't. They can't. And then finally, the third expression of idolatry from the heart that Keller identifies is that idolatry is spiritual treason. First, it's adultery towards God. Second, it's self-salvation. And third, it's spiritual treason. It's betraying our true king. It's obeying idols. It's trusting in idols rather than God. It's serving the creation, created things, rather than the Creator. Idolatry is spiritual treason. Betraying our true king. Our obedience becomes that of obeying idols rather than God. First Samuel 8, 7 through 8. And the Lord told him, this is the Lord speaking to Samuel when the people of Israel had rejected God as their king. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing the same to you. Okay? So that's an introduction to our series. It's to whet your appetite for where we're going. Okay? My hope, my hope 
is as we go through this series, we'll be made stronger, more capable, more able to identify those things that can be idols that you're really enemies of God and enemies to our soul. And that we'll be able to live in the world with God's people according to his word for Jesus Christ. My prayer for myself, my prayer for us is that of the psalmist. Create a clean heart in me, O God. Right? And renew a steadfast spirit in me.